This is The Secret Life of Writers, a new interview series with some of the world's most interesting and visionary writers and creative icons. My name is Gemma Birrell, and these rambly conversations are with people I personally find fascinating and whose work I love. We'll chat about how they do what they do and somehow manage to balance life and art. And if we're lucky, we'll also hear about what they're working on now. Today I'm speaking with Pip Williams, author of the memoir One Italian Summer and The Dictionary of Lost Words, a novel that's only recently come out in Australia and has already sold over 50,000 copies in just a few months. Later this year it will come out in many other countries throughout the world. It's had enormous support from booksellers and readers alike who've fallen in love with the story and characters as I have myself. I just finished it a few days ago and I have to say there were tears running down my face. It's a beautiful, all-engrossing tale, imagining another story behind the Oxford English Dictionary, and it sweeps you up from the first page. It's also the story of a young woman growing into herself, and a story about finding and pursuing your life's work and passion. Pip, hello. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh, Gemma, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Talking about a life's work, can we start off by hearing about your early years to set the scene a little bit? You were born in the UK. Where was that and what was it like? I was born in a place called Middlesex, Hayes in Middlesex, which is not far from London. And I can't really tell you what it was like because I was born there and then quickly taken to Wales where I spent the first three years of my life. Uh, My father is Welsh and that's where my parents actually lived. And when I was three, we moved to Australia. So most of my memories of the UK are from travelling home to see family and friends. Did you have any experience or do you remember learning Welsh at all? I mean, of course, three is very young, but you were saying you returned to the country. Yes. So I returned a few times with my mum in particular and we would stay for a few months at a time. So we went back to Wales where her parents were living at that time and I went to school in Wales and I actually went to a Welsh school. So this was a time when the Welsh language was being resurrected, I suppose, because there was a few decades there, in fact, when my parents were, when my father was young, where Welsh was discouraged. There's a whole generation of people who lost their native language. But in the 70s, they started to revive it. And we went back in the 70s. And so when I went to school, I learned Welsh. It's really interesting, I think, especially in the context of your novel, The Dictionary of Lost Words, and looking at that language and the periods, the way throughout history, there has been periods where it's been banned. And then more recently, as you were saying, it's quite a fascinating reflection of the culture and the history, isn't it? It is. And I think it's, um, if you track the history of languages and the way language has been imposed on people and then taken away from people, I think basically what you're doing is tracking the history of imperialism and the history of the aggressors and the history of the people who write history. (laughs) And I think language is always a victim, you know, whenever there is, there are cultural wars, whenever there are cultural aggressors, uh, language is the victim. And of course, culture is the victim. If we lose our language, we lose our ability to express ourselves in a way that is comfortable for us and in a way that responds to, you know, the people, places, stories of our past. 
I'm really looking forward to hearing more about that and more about the novel, of course, further into our conversation. But just keeping with um, your younger years initially, were you a big reader when you were a child? And what did you love to read back then? I was a big reader, which in a way, probably reading didn't come naturally to me. So I have dyslexia. And um, while this wasn't really diagnosed until I was well into high school because dyslexia just wasn't really um, on anyone's radar back in the 60s and 70s and early 80s. I had trouble learning to read. But once I did learn to read, I read voraciously, though slowly, so very, very slowly. But I always had a book and I was one of those kids that would just spend all weekend on my bed with a book and would have to be <laughs> sort of, you know, pushed out the door to get some fresh air. So, And who were you reading? Uh, well, I'd read anything, but I've never been a, a precocious reader, if that makes sense. So when I was a kid, the stuff I loved to read were Trixie Belden books. And this is similar to The Secret Seven or The Famous Five. They were a series of books. And when I say a series, I think they numbered in the 30s, 35 books or something. And they were probably for the, you know, for eight to 12 year olds, chapter books, but they were all about adventures of a group of friends. And the leader of that group of friends was a girl called Trixie. They were mystery, mystery books, essentially. And so, you know, they were always solving mysteries. And I absolutely loved them. When you were at school, did you have any particular teachers that saw your talents in reading and writing, even though you had those issues? Did you have a particular person that came out and saw something special in you back then? Well, in primary school, no. I was always being told what I was doing wrong when it comes to spelling and reading and writing as well, because my writing was and still is quite atrocious. And yet I obviously uh, was bright enough to absorb the knowledge they were trying to impart. So I tended to be in the higher classes and then I was an enigma really to the teachers because I couldn't express what I obviously knew. And it wasn't until high school, year 11 actually, that uh, my English teacher just came right out and said, oh, you have dyslexia. And she then started to give me oral tests rather than written tests because she saw that I was disadvantaging myself with my written work when she knew I understood the novels we were talking about or the concepts we were talking about because I would talk about them in class, but then I wouldn't put that down on paper. She was very influential in that right at that pivotal time when I was starting to decide, I suppose, what I wanted to do and who I was and whether I had the capacity to, say, go to university, she told me that I did have that capacity and that I just had this thing that made spelling and reading and writing a little slower and a little more difficult. What I should say, though, is that despite not being able to read very fast and despite not being able to write very neatly or spell, it never, ever occurred to me that I couldn't put down my thoughts and feelings with a pen on paper. So I did it regardless of all of that. How did you start writing? What was that process? I can't remember when I started writing, so I guess that means I must have been quite young and I wrote bad poetry like a lot of <laughs> <laughs> young people and I never wrote it for anybody else but myself. I suppose there was never that sense that I was going to be judged for it, which I think is something that a lot of children have and then they lose as soon as they realise they're going to be judged 
for the marks they put on paper, whether they're words or drawings or musical notes. Yeah, as soon as you think you're going to be judged, you sometimes stop doing it because you don't trust that what you've done is worthy of any positive comment. When I was young, I never thought about anybody reading what I was writing. I was writing to express myself. I think I was a very overly sensitive child and so I needed an outlet of some kind and poetry and diaries were that outlet. I did start, besides poetry, I started writing novels when I was about 11. Oh, really? Well, (laughs) no, don't get excited. Don't get excited, Gemma. (laughs) Uh, That's pretty impressive. A novel, that's pretty impressive at the age of 11. (laughs) I know. I only ever wrote one chapter and it was always the first chapter of a book that was remarkably similar to Puberty Blues. So um, (laughs) I do regret that I haven't got any evidence of this, but I remember writing that first chapter about 10 different times and they were all Puberty Blues ripoffs. When you were younger, you had that time overseas. Did you do much travelling after school? Yes. In fact, I said we went back to the UK on a number of occasions with my mum, who obviously was missing her family. And we'd stay for a few months each time. When I was 11, we flew Air India to London. And on our way, we got waylaid in what was then called Bombay, which is now Mumbai, I think. And there was a luggage handler's strike. So we were stuck in Bombay for three days. And it's one of those moments in life that just changed my views of life and made me realise that there was this huge world out there that before then had no idea about. And it was a a really intriguing, frightening, interesting, loud, noisy, smelly world, very confronting. And that's when I decided I was going to travel as soon as I left high school. And when we got back to Australia that time, I immediately started working at our local swimming centre and earning money so that I could save up to travel as soon as I left high school, and I did. Were you always writing when you were travelling? Did you always have a sense that you wanted to continue writing? I've heard lots of writers say this before. I don't think I ever thought, when I was in high school, as much as I, I still wrote, I wrote poetry right up until, well, I wrote poetry right through high school and into my first time at university. It's not something I ever gave up, but I never once thought that I could do it as a a life occupation. So I never considered enrolling in a creative writing degree. I never considered enrolling in an English degree. I ended up enrolling in a social science degree and I majored in psychology. Yeah, it just never occurred to me that I could do this as a living. And I think that's common for a lot of people. I didn't have any writers in my life, although I will come back to that. I did eventually have a writer in my life, my dad, but he didn't come to writing until he was in his 50s, sort of similar to me really. And up until that time, he'd been a computer analyst. So, (laughs) and although, you know, my parents both enjoyed reading, I didn't grow up in a household full of books. I didn't grow up thinking that writing was something or the arts at all was something I could pursue. So, But you had it within you, you were saying, from when you were younger. And when you did start to travel, was it something that you continued to do? Yes. So whenever I've travelled, I've always kept a diary and I've always... So there's a few things that I've done when I travel, but also when I haven't been travelling. 
I've kept a, a journal, but not the kind of journal that you write in every day and you say say what's going on. It's a kind of bitsy journal full of just ideas, really, and, you know, some reflections on life, but uh, it's not a what I did journal. The other thing I do when I travel, or even if I'm just traveling on public transport to get to and from work, is I have a, a little notebook in my bag, which I jot down nuggets of observation, if you know what I mean. So it could be snippets of conversation. It could be that I've seen someone and I've I've wondered about them because of some striking characteristic or their demeanour or whatever it might be. And I've just written, written literally a couple of lines that have interested me. And I often, in fact, I almost never go back to those things, but I always have in the back of my mind that they might be useful one day. And in fact, that was when I travelled overseas to Italy, which you might ask me about. That's where that book sprung from my little notebook full of observations. Talking about Italy, can you give us the story about how that happened? I've recently read your wonderful memoir as well, but it'll be great for people who don't know anything about it to hear about how that happened and what made you go to Italy. Sure. Um, So basically, instead of becoming a writer, I became an academic and worked as an academic for about 20, 25 years and eventually became completely disillusioned by it. And I suppose this was, in a way, a kind of midlife crisis where I was working, I was churning out papers and research and really feeling like I wasn't making the contribution that I, I thought I might be making when I'd gotten into it, but also a bit disillusioned with the whole tertiary sector. And I basically was depressed. And it wasn't just my job. I was depressed because when you close the door on your creativity, which I think a lot of us do sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. And in my case, I think it was unconscious at first. I had always written and I did want to be a writer. After a while, after going to university and starting work, I did start to think I do want to be a writer, but I never did it. I never became a writer. I still jotted things down in notebooks, but I never actually sat down and tried to write something that someone else might read. And this went on for years and I continued just doing my job and looking after my children and doing all the things that you do when you're a grown-up. But after a while, that creative urge starts knocking on your door and year after year that knock gets louder and louder and I basically just had to answer it. And I think that contributed to my sense of burnout when I was an academic and the real depression that I had. I essentially wasn't answering the door to something that was very important to me. So I didn't realise, though, that that was exactly what it was. What I thought it was was just burnout, that we just needed a change, that I needed to get out of academia and do something new. And my partner and I had moved from Sydney to the Adelaide Hills in order to live the good life. And we did that about 17 years ago now. And we'd been in the Adelaide Hills on five acres trying to grow fruit and vegetables and raise chickens for a few years and we were failing at it dismally. So (laughs) we actually grew fruit trees and had an orchard and had a vegetable garden. But essentially I brought everything with me from Sydney to the Adelaide Hills. So I had two small children. I was halfway through a degree. 
I had to get a job to pay the bills. And then we added a farm. So essentially, I hadn't really downshifted. I just added another task to my workload. And it just wasn't working. The life we envisaged wasn't working. Well, it's very busy. So much going on. That's right. And I think we're all lulled into this dream of the good life when we watch, you know, the River Cottage and all of those lovely shows that sort of show people breaking bread together and, you know. But we also all have a deep craving for that kind of slower, more substantial life, don't we? I think you're absolutely right. And we crave it and we seek it out, but we realise it has to be paid for. And so we can't actually give up some of the things that are actually causing us to have a sense of being stressed and pressed for time all the time. We, we still need to work in order to pay for the orchard. And anyway, we kind of decided it just wasn't working and we needed to get a bit of work experience. And so we joined Willing Workers on Organic Farms. We took the kids out of school and we flew to Italy and we worked our way around Italy on organic farms for about five months in order to try and work out what we wanted to do with our own five acres, whether or not we could make money off it and how we would do that. And so we really went to Italy to really learn how to live the good life. What an incredibly liberating experience, just deciding to up and go like that. I think so many of us are kind of trapped in our everyday lives and can't really imagine cutting the ties like that and being able to go, but also such a wonderful and admirable thing to do. Was it as good as you thought? Uh, Well, yes, it was, but I didn't find what I thought I was looking for. So I thought I was looking for the good life. And in fact, what I found was that the good life is a mirage. It's like a postcard, you know, when you're traveling and you used to send postcards home saying, you know, wish you were here. And the front of the postcard was always, you know, a beach in full sunshine. But it's kind of like going on that holiday and arriving during a storm this idea that I had of the good life from television and the Saturday inserts in newspapers was just not realised. What I found was that the people that we stayed with were working extraordinarily hard for very little in return. And there was the conviviality, there was the shared food, there was this real sense of being connected to where your food and sustenance came from. But at the same time, it was extremely hard work and there wasn't many hours left in the day to do anything else. And as we went around Italy, as we worked on these farms, I reflected on the lives of the women in particular that we were staying with and realised that I actually didn't want to live that life because that life would leave me even less time to pursue this creative passion, I suppose, that I was starting to realise I had to honour. So when we came back from Italy and we came back to our house and our farm and the the grass was as high as an elephant's eye, (laughs) you know, and it was pouring with rain, we (laughs) left Italy in summer and came back to winter in the Adelaide Hills, which is pretty dismal. And we had no money left and I had to get a job. And all of a sudden I felt like this whole time away had just been this bubble that I'd just burst and I was back where I started and I was miserable again. (laughs) And because I just felt like we hadn't 
been able to find a way to move on from where we were. And, you know, that sounds like such a privileged thing to say because where we were... No, but it's looking for a way out and a different way of living, though, that you can actually find a level of contentedness as well. I totally understand. That's true. And I think what I came to realise, well, Shannon said you should write about it because he knew that I wanted to write. And he said, well, write about this and try and figure out what it meant. And it was just such good advice and one of the many reasons I love him. And so I did. I just started writing and I'd look out the window and he hadn't lost the dream. What I realised is that I had just followed him into his dream and this five acres and the orchard and the vegetable garden and the chickens and the alpacas, they were his dream to have. And he came back and he still, you know, many years later, his happy place is the orchard. But we have come to this happy, I suppose, balance where I sit inside scribbling (laughs) and I watch him working in the garden. And really, that's where we both want to be. How did you marry earning money at the time when you returned and that daily need to earn money with your writing when you decided to also write? Yeah, that's such a good question. And earlier I said, you know, I came back and nothing had changed. It took the writing of the memoir, One Italian Summer, to realise that actually everything had changed. So in some ways, if you just looked at us, you would think their life is exactly as it was before they left. Pip, you know, I went back to work. Instead of academia, I started working at a local government. So some would say that wasn't really a move up. (laughs) But actually, I found that it was a great change to being in academia. I could apply a lot of the research that I'd been doing over the years. And I worked part-time and that was the compromise. That was one of the differences. So I worked part-time. And so I had a couple of days a week that were just mine. My children were at school, so I had those school hours to myself. It's like a room of one's own, isn't it? It's that time. It is. And I'd love to talk about that, actually. That's a really important book to me, A Room of One's Own. But I had just that bit of time, and that's when I was writing the memoir. And when I got to the end of the memoir, and I'd retraced my steps through Italy and understood what it meant to me, what I realised is I had learnt that good enough is good enough, that I actually did live a really privileged life in the Adelaide Hills and that even though nothing had changed, I had shifted the way I saw it and that the good life is not attainable, not the good life that we see on postcards or on television. But if you change your attitude, I suppose, or your expectation from perfect to good enough, it changes everything. And all of a sudden, being able to work part-time was good enough. Being able to tell Shannon that wouldn't it be nice to plant zucchinis and raspberries this year is good enough. I don't have to be out there picking them, you know, in a floral skirt and a <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't have to be picture perfect. We can just get aspects of these things that we crave and that is good enough. And I still fall back on that whenever I'm feeling like I'm missing out on something. Pip, how did you get the book published? What was that process like? Uh, This is going to make so many writers listening to this either hopeful or jealous. So (laughs) I plugged away at my memoir for a couple of years. It probably took two years to uh, get it to a good draft. 
And then I just kept sending it out. And every time I sent it out, I would redraft to some extent. I would fix it, read it, edit it. And it got rejected so many times or just not even commented on. But I did get some feedback from a couple of publishers saying they liked it, but they didn't have room for it on their list. And so that was actually very encouraging, but still it didn't get published. And after about maybe 18 months of trying to get it published, I pretty much gave up and I had a last hurrah. I sent it to a couple of publishers who actually had on their website that they were not accepting unsolicited manuscripts. I just sent it anyway because <laughs> I'd been such a good girl up until then, which really annoys me sometimes how, you know, I'd just been following the rules and someone just said to me, just don't follow the rule, <laughs> just send it. It's <laughs> great advice. Well, what are they going to do? If they like it, they're not going to say, oh, but you broke the rules, so we're not going to publish it. <laughs> anyway, so that this had never occurred to me until somebody told me to do it. So I sent it off to three publishers and one of them, my preferred publisher, which was a firm press, they didn't get back to me for a little while, but two others did. And they got back to me around about the same time. And both of them were interested. Both of them asked to see the full manuscript and one of them said that they liked it. And then a firm press got back to me and said that they were interested. Could they have the full manuscript? And I had to tell the others, you know, that I had interest from a couple of other publishers. And it's amazing what that does. It just made everybody kind of, oh, well, um, give us two days, we'll read it and get back to you. You know, all of a sudden everything went very quickly and in the end, a firm press liked it enough to offer me a contract and I was absolutely over the moon and it's like winning the lottery and it still is. It's not actually my first book. I wrote a book as an academic with a couple of other colleagues, but this was my first creative project, I suppose, and it was the first book where only my name was on it. And even though it's a smaller book than the Dictionary of Lost Words, obviously it hasn't sold nearly as many copies. I think that would be hard for any book <laughs> to be selling as many copies as your novel right now, that's for sure. <laughs> Maybe, but it was such a special moment. It really was the lottery winner and it gave me validity. We were talking about A Room of One's Own earlier. Something that Virginia Woolf writes in that book is that money dignifies what is frivolous if unpaid for. And I think when you're a writer, that is exactly how you feel until someone says to you that your work is worth publishing and that someone might pay for it. Even if all you get from it in the end is $100, it makes the whole enterprise valid. You stop feeling guilty about taking time away from your family, about not doing any housework, about not helping with the weeding in the orchard, <laughs> because all of a sudden someone has told you that your writing is valuable in some way. And so that's what that meant to get that book published. So I haven't done any sort of degrees in creative writing, but I'm an eternal student and I really love having mentors in every aspect of my life. I've always sought out people I can learn from. So all of my jobs, I've found people that I respect and can learn from. And I decided to do the same with my books. 
And so with my first book, a woman called Carol Lefevre, who is a novelist and nonfiction writer in Adelaide, a beautiful, beautiful writer, she agreed to mentor me for One Italian Summer. And every time I have a mentor, I just learn these little snippets of incredible advice that just never leave me. And I'm happy to share that with you, Gemma, if you like me to. Yes, please. So Carol, the thing that I've taken away from Carol, and there were many things I took away from Carol, but the one that has always stuck with me and I still use every time I write a sentence, she talks about turning the sentence. And what she means by that is you can write a grammatically correct sentence But if the weight of the words is not properly placed, it loses its power. And she was saying, so when you've got your sentence down, when you've said what you want to say, read your sentence and then turn it so that it has more weight. And what she means is move the words around so that the weighty words, the good words, are just before the comma and just before the full stop. An example that she gave me was you can say something along the lines of we came out to Australia on the boat and my mother died on the way, but you could turn that sentence by saying something like we came out to Australia on the boat and on the way my mother died. And ending on that big weighty word, it sort of prepares the reader for jumping off a cliff in a way. But when you put those amazing words amongst all the dross of our language, you diminish them. And so this is what I learned from Carol Lefevre. So what a beautiful way of expressing it. It's so true, isn't it? It is. And I hope she doesn't mind me sharing it, but it could be a trade (laughs) secret. But I found that just so useful. And I use it every day when I'm writing. And then for the Dictionary of Lost Words, I um, had another mentor, Tony Jordan, who is a wonderful novelist from Melbourne. And Tony published, her last book was called The Fragments, which came out last year, which is a wonderful story if you want to get hold of it. She actually is a creative writing teacher and a wonderful novelist. And because I was writing a novel and I hadn't written fiction before, I felt like I, again, needed a mentor that could hold my hand for a while, I suppose, through the process. So we met for about six months or so. And the bit of advice that I keep from her, again, amongst much advice, was this idea of leading someone up the garden path to the front door, I suppose. So I have this habit when I'm writing of jumping straight into the middle of a scene. And I think a lot of beginning writers actually make the opposite mistake where they set scenes up a little too much so that it takes a long time to get to the action. Really what I was doing is I wasn't giving any context to what I was writing. And she just described a a scene like a house. And she said, you kind of want, the reader wants to know what it's like walking into that house and then into the dining room where all the action is happening. What alerts them to what might be going on 
in that dining room. So even though everything's happening in the dining room, it's kind of nice sometimes to let them walk up to the front door and open it and hear and smell and see some of the things that will give hints to what's about to happen, what they're about to walk in on. And so that's the advice that I got from Tony, which again, I'm very conscious of because that really directly speaks to a habit that I have (laughs) of forgetting the context and just jumping straight in. Well, I think that takes us to the Dictionary of Lost Words because what is so all-absorbing and all-encompassing about that, I absolutely loved it. And the characters are so well-formed. The story is so well-developed. So you've definitely taken all of that on. Can you talk us through how the idea came to you and when that happened? Was that straight away after the memoir that you started writing that or was it an idea you'd been thinking about for some time? Actually, straight after the memoir, before the memoir was even published, I did start writing a novel because I think what I'd always wanted to do was write fiction and writing the memoir for me was a little bit like a creative writing apprenticeship. I thought if I write the memoir and no one publishes it, it doesn't matter because it will be an important story for our family. But when it was actually in production and being printed, I did start writing a novel and it was a much more contemporary novel and I was enjoying it. But at the same time, I kept going back to this idea that I'd had probably a year or so earlier when a friend lent me a copy of The Surgeon of Crowthorn by Simon Winchester. And The Surgeon of Crowthorn is non-fiction, a really small, pithy book about the relationship between James Murray, the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, and one of the more prolific and interesting volunteers who sent in sentences that demonstrate the meaning of words. And It's a really interesting book and I would recommend it to anybody. But what I gleaned from that is a little bit of the process of putting the dictionary together. And from that process, I realized that it was a very male endeavor. And so for a long time, I just had this idea in the back of my head, really a question, which was about, is it possible that the dictionary is a gendered text? Because all of the editors were men All of the lexicographers were men. Most of the assistants were men. But most importantly, the literature and the texts that were being referred to when they were wanting to find evidence for the meaning of a word, that literature was mostly written by men because this was a Victorian endeavour. And before the 20th century and even well into the 20th century, most literature was written by men. Very few women were writing novels, let alone texts and academic texts and histories and so on. And so it just made me realise that if the dictionary was relying on all of these sources and decision makers and all of them were men, what kind of impact will that have on the dictionary and how it defines words? And does that mean that it is biased essentially towards men's experience? Now, this just sat as a question for me for a long time, but when I started writing the other novel, I started to get the idea that maybe there was a novel in this question. Maybe if I threw a young woman into the factual timeline of the Oxford English Dictionary, I'd be able to answer it. But the thing was, I just didn't think I had the skills 
to write such a book, not just because it was fiction, but because it was so important to respect and honour the truth and the history of the Oxford English Dictionary. I'm not a historian and I wasn't a novelist. And so I felt like I just didn't have the CV, essentially, to write this book. So I persisted with the other novel for a while, but that knocking on the door started happening again and I just actually couldn't ignore it. And so I started to write The Dictionary of Lost Words. It's interesting that the best books are sometimes written avoiding writing another book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) What was the process like writing it? Did you write it here in Australia? Did it happen quite easily and effortlessly? How was that? So like I said, I was writing another novel and I was planning a trip to go back to the UK and on that trip, because I I still have a lot of family and friends there and I visit regularly, on that trip I decided I would do a writing workshop at a place called Arvon, which has residential writing workshops around the UK. And I enrolled in a fiction writing workshop for beginners and was going to take this other novel to work on while I was there. But the closer I got to leaving, the more I realised that the novel I really should be taking with me to England was the novel that was set in England. And I had this opportunity to go and do some research at Oxford because I happened to be going over there. So I quickly changed my mind And in the weeks before leaving, I did a bit of extra reading. I read a few books about the dictionary and how it was developed. And I wrote the beginning section. So literally, I wrote about a thousand words uh, from the beginning of the book. And I wrote the epilogue. And so I probably went with about 2000 words to the UK. And from that, that's where I started essentially. And the epilogue hasn't changed at all. And that's first section that I wrote is sort of halfway through chapter one. So that was the beginning. Was it a pleasurable experience writing it or was it a difficult one? Yeah, it was a joy, Gemma. I just loved it. So when I was writing the memoir, it was a real love-hate relationship (laughs) with writing. I really procrastinated so much. I never wanted to sit down and do it. You know, I often didn't get started until 2.30 in the afternoon and then I'd have to go and pick the children up at three. And so it was a bit of a fraught experience. It's that sort of thing where I hated writing, but I loved having written. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, but that's how I felt as a writer. With this book, I loved the research and I tend to write and research at the same time. So I don't do kind of months and months of research and then sit down to write. I write and then I tend to research around what I've written. So I allow the story to determine what it is I need to know. And I did a few things (laughs) that tricked myself into writing so that I wouldn't procrastinate so much, which are really kind of, they sound silly, but they work. So basically my undergraduate degree was in psychology. So I just did some basic Pavlovian conditioning on myself. What was that? (laughs) How How did you do that? Well, I wanted to be one of those writers that wrote every day and didn't spend the whole time, you know, chastising themselves and hating themselves for not reaching their word quota. So I did two things. I linked writing to coffee 
in a coffee shop. (laughs) So just for a week, I will go to the coffee shop every day with my laptop, ordered a coffee, started writing. It didn't matter what I was writing. I just started writing. I enjoy coffee so much uh, (laughs) that (laughs) it took about a week for me to essentially then make the mental link between coffee and writing and the joy, (laughs) the joy and anticipation of coffee. So whenever I thought about writing, I would get all of the joy of a coffee running through my system and my mind, that it would make me look forward to it. And so that was maybe three years ago and that still happens. It's interesting though as well because I think that it flows so well and we are carried away in the story. You lose yourself in it. So I think also some of your pleasure comes across in the style of the writing. I'm sort of not joking about the classical conditioning. I really did do that. But I think this story lent itself to enjoyment as a writer. I was so interested in the topic, but then I was very interested in Esme's story that I actually just wanted to see what happened. And I looked forward to seeing how the story unfolded. So even though I actually did have a sort of umbrella big picture idea of what was happening, I had to some extent defined the structure of this story. Whenever I wrote a scene, it could really go wherever. It depended on what came out of my fingertips. I often had no idea what would happen. And sometimes something quite surprising would happen and I would have to sort of rejig the entire book. But I just enjoyed watching those moments come out into the story as if I was reading it in a way. So for me as a writer, it was a bit like reading a really good book that you just couldn't wait to get back to. And I hope that happens again with the next book. In a way, it's really interesting because Essie's calling, which is is the dictionary and working on the dictionary, is she can't, she's constantly drawn back in. She can't resist it. It really is her life's work. And there seems that there is a similarity between you and the writing that you've been doing and that joy and pleasure in the purpose that you find. Ah, that's so lovely. No one has ever said that or made that observation. And I don't know that I've made it myself, but I think you're right. It's kind of like a life's occupation in a way. And I think other writers might say something similar that it's not necessarily something you choose to do because why would you? It's pretty poorly remunerated for most writers. And it's very often, you know, psychologically stressful and demoralizing and all of those things. It's not actually something I think you would choose to do, like you might choose to become an accountant or a doctor or something else. And so it draws you in. So if you are a writer, I think you will always be a writer, whether you publish anything or not. I think you will think like a writer. You'll be observing things and always imagining them as a story or in prose or in, you know, verse. I think being a writer is more a a part of your nature. It's a state of mind if you are lucky enough to be able to have the room of your own and 500 a year, then you might be able to get something down on paper. And then if you're very lucky, you might be able to get it published. And if you're very, very lucky, you might make some money out of it. But it does keep drawing you back. And I think, yeah, from having this conversation with you, I realised that I have never not written. I have always written It's just that only now am I publishing and other people are interested in the process. But in talking about the process, I think you're right. It's my lifetime occupation. 
And also lovely to think all of those years you have been working towards it, all of the notes that you've made over that time and the contemplation throughout those different periods of your life, it's leading to this time where you are writing. I think, yeah, I think you're right. And it's also, I was thinking about this the other day, also the work that I've done. So, you know, I was an academic and I did research and the kind of research I did was always very big picture research. So I was interested in how people lived their lives, essentially. So interestingly, I was always interested in how people lived a good life for them, how they balanced work, home, community, care, education, those sorts of things. Very big picture, all-encompassing research questions. And then I went on to, you know, the work I do now is sort of community planning and strategic planning. And even my reading interests when I was young, you asked me earlier what I enjoyed reading and I said Trixie Belden, but what I ended up reading after that when I was a teenager was a lot of John le Carre and spy novels and things like that. So I was really interested in anything that had this overarching structure that if you could navigate your way through it, you would discover things. And even though I haven't written a mystery or a spy novel or a detective novel or anything like that, I've had a similar approach to it, I think, to the approach that I've had in a lot of my work situations where I've looked at the whole and then tried to piece the jigsaw pieces together in order to come up with an all-encompassing story, if that makes sense. And you know how to make the reader want to go on. That's a huge skill in the work as well, that ability to kind of keep us just submerged in the narrative. Oh, thank you for saying that, Gemma. I don't know, I have to admit, I don't know how you do that. (laughs) And so if I've done it, I'm really glad that I have. I would make a terrible writing mentor in a way because I'm not sure how to explain things in the way things have been explained to me. I dread, in fact, that idea of someone asking me, I suppose, how I do stuff or how do you write? Because I feel like if I take it apart, to see how it works. It will never fit back together again, which is a Billy Bragg quote, but I apply it liberally to everything I do. (laughs) And what about the balance between truth and fiction? Was that a difficult balance to happen upon because it was so well-researched, as you were saying? Actually, I found it to be an enormous help to have the fact. So my first book was a memoir and I wrote that by essentially following my itinerary, which was the facts of that book, if you like, and my emotional journey was the creative bit. But in the Dictionary of Lost Words, the scaffold was the facts around the development of the Oxford English Dictionary and then, of course, also the suffrage movement and World War I. They were things that to me were immovable. It was very important to me that I didn't change anything that I knew to be true. And when I say true, I mean factually true. But again, Virginia Woolf has something to say about this. And she talks about that fiction must stick to the facts for it to have integrity. And I think what she means by that is that whether or not there is, you know, dates and events that really happened in a work of fiction, I think what you need to do is stick to the facts of humanity, of being human or of being in a particular time. Otherwise, readers won't be convinced. And so I used the actual events of the Oxford English Dictionary as my scaffold. And so it made it in a way, in some ways, it made it easier to weave the story because I knew in a way 
the emotional truth that had to come out at different times of the history, if that makes sense. And even though I had a fictional character, there is enough evidence for how humans have reacted at different times to different events for me to render that character truthfully, if that makes sense. And there were also actual characters that you fictionalised as well, weren't there? That's right. So there were a lot of characters in this book who are, I suppose, minor secondary characters who I have sort of given a superficial skin to, if you like. And I've done that by picking up little anecdotes from the history and from people who know the history really well. Like I said, I went to Oxford and and did some research, but I also spoke to the archivists at the Oxford University Press and a lexicographer who's written the history of the dictionary. And they gave me bits of information that I could use just to flesh out ever so slightly some of the real characters. But there's one character in particular who I have borrowed from the historical record, and her name is Edith Thompson. And Edith Thompson was a volunteer. She was one of those people who sent in words on slips of paper with sentences showing how they'd been used. And she volunteered for the dictionary right from the beginning of the first publication right to the end, from A to Z. And she was such a trusted and valued volunteer that she also did a lot of proofreading and editing So she did a lot of work for the dictionary. But when it came to celebrating the dictionary, she wasn't allowed to sit at the table with all of the men who had been invited. So 150 men were invited to celebrate the final publication and three women were told that they could sit in the balcony and watch the men eat. (laughs) And she was one of them. And I really wanted to celebrate her and the other women, some of the other women who participated and they're in the book, daughters usually. Well, she's such a lovable character. Ditty, I don't know how you pronounce it. Do you pronounce it Ditty? I pronounce it Dita. Dita, okay. Yeah, but I, others others do pronounce it Ditty, and, but in my head it was always Dita. She's such a lovable character. She really is and so wise and learned as well. She's one of the people that really kind of sneaks into your heart when you're reading it. I'm glad. It was actually a bit of an ethical dilemma how I wrote about her because I know a little bit about Edith Thompson, the real person, and everything I know about her I've included in the dictionary. She really was a historian. She really did write a history of England that was used as a textbook at schools. She really did live with her sister in Bath, those sorts of things. But I gave her the nickname Dita just to, I suppose, acknowledge that much of what I was writing was fiction because, of course, she couldn't have been Esme's godmother because Esme never existed. But I had the opportunity to read letters that she'd written to James Murray and to other members of the Murray family. And I think I got a sense of her character and her sense of humour and her intellect from those letters. And so I tried to emulate her voice. If you know what I mean, when you read the letters, I hope I've captured something of her personality in the book. Well, I like that you've actually got letters as well in the book, like that you read a lot of letters of hers to James Murray. And within the book, there's letters of hers to Esme, which is a nice connection as well. Yeah. And there is one letter in the book that is a real letter to James Murray. It's just a note about the word lip pencil. Oh, right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This 
is a period that isn't actually covered within the book because the book is looking at, as you have said earlier, is looking at the words that get into the dictionary and the words that don't, the women's words, the working class words, the conversational words that don't necessarily, that didn't at that period, they weren't acceptable enough to go into the dictionary because there was no textual example. My question for you is, when did some of those conversational words and words that were more kind of female words, when did they start coming into the dictionary? So in 1989, the second edition of the Oxford English Dictionary was published. But prior to that, so even while they were publishing the later letters of the alphabet. So during the 20s and after World War I, the dictionary was published originally in full in 1928. As soon as they published actually the letter A back in 1884, they started to collect words for supplements. So they were collecting words all along for supplemental publications that would come out after the full Oxford English Dictionary had been published in 1928. And the first supplement came out in uh, 1933, I think it was, and that included quite a few words that are actually in my novel that had been left out of the original dictionary. And in 1989, they published a second edition where essentially what they did was, I think they cleaned it up a little bit, but they also published another maybe 5,000 words and a whole lot of meanings of words. And they got rid of some of the judgmental language that was in the first edition. And they had more conversational words, did they, as well at that point? Yes, and swear words (laughs) as well that had been considered too vulgar to include in the first edition. They're working on the third edition as we speak And it's quite likely that it won't be published in hard copy, unfortunately. So the first edition is 12 very large volumes. Uh, The second edition is 20. And so you can imagine with the um, explosion, if you like, of textual evidence of words that we have experienced over the last decade or so, you know, because of social media in particular and email and texting and all of those sorts of things, there are now so many avenues for gathering evidence for how a word is used that that third edition is going to be an enormous text. And one of the things that the Oxford English Dictionary never does is take out a word. So if a word goes in, it never comes out. So it has always been the goal right from the very beginning, back in, I think it was 1855, when they proposed this new dictionary of the English language. It was always the goal that it would contain every single word in the English language now and also obsolete. So yeah, it's quite an extraordinary undertaking. It's interesting, the obsolete, the words that speak of the history, as we were saying before, with the language. But do you think you can have too many words in a dictionary or the more the better because it's such a kind of reflection of who we are? I think that's a really good question. Most of us have a dictionary on our bookshelves that is a single volume, probably a thick book, but still a single volume. And also it probably isn't the Oxford English Dictionary and so it doesn't contain a history of those words. The Oxford English Dictionary is different to a lot of other dictionaries in that it actually does give you the history of the word going back as far as they possibly can. And so you can sort of see how a word may have changed over time. Most dictionaries just give us a contemporary meaning 
and definition. But with the Oxford English Dictionary, I think maybe my views may have changed through the researching of this book because I now see it not just as a a dictionary and I suppose something that can help me understand the meaning of words, but I see it as a history book. And like all history, I think you excise the details at your peril. And as I was reading, and I did, I used to go to the um, State Library of South Australia, where they have a beautiful set of first edition Oxford English Dictionary volumes. And I would read through it, obviously not all 12, but I would just turn the pages, looking at words, and then looking at how they might have been used over the centuries. And you get an understanding of the people and the era that those words were used by reading the examples of sentences. And if we lose that, I think that would be a terrible shame. How do you let go of the characters after you've written a book? Well, I have to admit that I have had trouble letting go of not just the characters, but the entire context of this book. Like I said, I loved it so much. I enjoyed writing it. I loved doing the research. I loved being in Oxford and I loved the period. For me, it was like, I'm not a historian. I've never been interested in the war. And all of a sudden I find that I have these yearnings really to find out a little bit more about this time in history, because I think it speaks so much to the time we're living through now. So in fact, I haven't let them all go. I've let some of them go. I've let the main characters go. I've let Esme go. But there are other characters in this book, Tilda, for instance, and characters who were always in the back of my mind, but a reader wouldn't know that they were in the book. And I've started a a companion novel, actually. So, Oh, wonderful. Yeah, so I'm going to go back to Oxford around the time of World War One, which also includes, of course, the time of the Spanish flu. And I had this idea long before coronavirus kind of hit our century, but now it seems even more poignant and important, I suppose, to understand how people have dealt with these things in the past because they're not unique to us and our ancestors have survived these things. And I'm interested to understand a little bit of how that might have played out for, in this case, probably working class characters rather than middle class characters. I absolutely cannot wait to read it. I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks for letting us know about that. Now, this is a bit of a random question before you go. Is there something that you could tell us about yourself that we wouldn't know? Something perhaps that you're quite passionate about or interested in? Um, It's really funny. I... Uh, well, I'm sure there's a lot of things that nobody knows because I, I'm, I'm not very well known. But the other thing is I'm not on social media, not because I have a grind with social media, but because I'm easily distracted and I'd rather not have social media in my life in terms of a constant checking and so on. But also because I have never been much of a sharer in the way that social media seems to encourage people to be. And then having said that, I went and wrote a memoir, which kind of revealed far more about my life than I ever would have thought I would reveal. I mean, I hope that I wrote it in a way that people could then relate my experiences to their own experience. That was the intention. But I did end up sharing quite a lot in that book. I suppose in terms of something that a lot of people wouldn't know about me, I used to be a belly dancer. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that was similar to to 
writing in a way in that the thing I loved about belly dancing is actually that ability to separate yourself from everything else that's around you. I think it's that thing they call it flow. There are a few activities where once you're really into it, nothing can really penetrate that really wonderful sense of being in the moment and being in tune with something that is deep inside you. So with dancing of any kind, it's this communion with your own body in a way, and it's just a real ease in your body. And with writing, when the words are actually coming out, it's this ease in your mind. And people get these experiences in so many different ways, but it is important, I think, to find them, to find out what gives you that sense of ease, you know, spiritually, psychologically, physically. And I feel very grateful that I've found two ways to sort of feel easy in myself. Thank you so much, Pip. It's really been such a pleasure speaking with you and congratulations again on such deserved success of this wonderful novel. I recommend it to everyone and I hope you run out and buy it immediately if you haven't already. And if you're listening to this from overseas, you're in for a real treat when it comes out later this year. 